Please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Psalm 89. A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You, Lord, have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build up your throne for all generations. Selah. Jumping down to verse 22. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. Down to verse 34. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Selah. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls and you've laid his strongholds in ruin. All who pass by plunder him. He's become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth and have covered him with shame. Selah, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Verse 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Have you ever come to church, like this morning or some past Christmas weeks, worshipped, sang some great songs, heard of great promises, but then gone home, looked at your circumstances and thought, boy, where's all that triumph that was in those songs? I, I believe it all but I just don't quite feel it or see it in my life. Well, you're in good company. Some of the wisest men of the Bible struggled with that same conflict. The author of today's psalm was one such man. We find his name listed at the top of the psalm as Ethan the Ezraite, to which we might ask, who is Ethan the Ezraite? Are we supposed to recognize him? Well, we don't know much about him, but we do learn one surprising thing about him. In 1 Kings chapter 4, it's describing Solomon's rise to power, contemporaries of his day. In verse 29, it says this, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, breath of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman and Karkal and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Apparently, Ethan was so well known at the time of Solomon that when Scripture wanted to convey just how wise Solomon was, it says, he's even wiser 
than Ethan. So while Solomon may have outranked him, it's no shame to be the second wisest man in the land. And so from this Ethan, we get just one psalm, Psalm 89, which has a unique twist to it. See, most psalms are either very straightforward praise, or within the first couple verses, you can see that they're an obvious cry for help. But this psalm, it lures you in, builds a catalog of praises first, so you think you know what it's all about. But then in the second half, it pivots. And he says, but now, Lord, your promises seem to be failing. Whoa. See, we'll find the psalm is actually a lament. It's wrestling with grief and disappointment. He asks uncomfortable questions like, Lord, have you forgotten us? How long until you make things right? So now how does Ethan reconcile the praise in the beginning with the Lent? How do those work together? And how do we reconcile those in our lives? Are we allowed to bring complaints to God? And is there a difference between lament and just plain grumbling? For that matter, why would I choose to preach about lament on New Year's Eve? Here on the last day of 2023, we know that we should be filled with thankfulness and praise, which I think we are, for all that God has done for us this past year. Just like Ethan begins his psalm with, with praise and thanks. We know it's right to be joyful in our salvation, no matter the circumstances. But what do we do with the hard things that have happened in this past year? How do we process the disappointments, the losses, or just the fear of what's still to come? What does faith look like on Monday and Tuesday when we're faced with perplexing things, confusing events in our lives that make us wonder, Lord, where are you in all of this? How, how can this be working for good? Now, of course, tragedy in our, in our lives surely prompt this. You know, a sudden job loss, a car accident, a cancer diagnosis, or the death of a loved one. But you don't need a tragedy to prompt these emotions and these questions. Sometimes life's just plain hard. <laughs> For instance, think about the slow burn of lingering disappointment. Lord, I, I wanted to be married now, but I, I'm still single. I thought my career would be better or further along, but I'm just kind of stuck here with no prospect for improvement. Lord, will I ever have kids? Or my kids are not where they should be. Will they ever come around? Or simply, why is it such a grind to just pay the bills, get your car repaired, get insurance covered, rent? Many of us just read the news and with sinking hearts see the moral decline all around us. We quickly can become discouraged and anxious about what might come to our country or the world in this upcoming year. This is where lament comes in. Simply put, lament is a prayer of faith that brings our pain to God. The writer Mark Vrogop defines lament as this, the honest cry of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. See, lament does not turn away from God when he brings us hard circumstances but brings the hard circumstances to God in faith that his promises will come to pass even when we can't possibly see how. Before we dive into the words of Ethan, the Ezraite, to teach us more about lament, let me, let me pray and ask God to bless my words this morning. Lord, you have shown your power in nature and your 
goodness and mercy and scripture in our own lives, especially in sending your son Jesus, celebrated so sweetly these past weeks at Christmas. But now, many of us today, perhaps all of us in the new year ahead, struggle with difficulties and disappointment. Teach us to trust you. Show us your goodness and faithfulness that we might believe. Help our unbelief. That in all things we might look more to Jesus and less to the wind and waves around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The title of today's sermon, A Wise Man's Lament, could easily have been A Wise Man's Praise, as the first 37 verses tell of God's power and promises. If you're taking notes, I have four key sections that loosely follow Ethan's flow of thought. First is a praise of God's power, praise of God's power, a listing of God's promises, God's promises, pain, or Ethan's lament, and finally, Ethan's petition, his petition to God. Before we understand the, the weight of Ethan's pain and lament, we need to understand the power and promises he felt were out of sync with his experience. The first God's power, starting back in verse 1. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Ethan will mention God's steadfast love six times, and then his faithfulness seven times. So clearly those are some pretty key themes of this psalm. He continues in verse 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? Now think as a comparison about the gold medal winner of an Olympic 100-meter dash, right? He's, he's won out. He's superior to all his competitors. But if you watch those races and you look at the silver medalist and the bronze medalist, those guys, they lost by 0.001 seconds. And you go, okay, yeah, the, the gold medalist, is, he's better, but, it, but just barely, right? I mean, maybe if they did like a best out of three, the bronze medalist would have, would have totally won that day. Now, is that what the spiritual realms are like? Is God just a, a little better than other forces? Now, modern spiritualists want you to believe there's an eternal cosmic struggle between good and evil, God and Satan. The yin and the yang, always balanced, always struck. Who's got the edge? And they, no one can quite pull ahead. Now, Ethan says, no, it's not even close. He said, in the heavenly realms, the other powers and spirits, who when they appear to us throughout the scripture, men fall on their faces in fear and trembling. To those beings, God is awesome and greatly feared. Who can compare, Ethan asks? No one can compare. Then in verse 8, he continues, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? His faithfulness all around him. So we might expect God to be surrounded by flashes of lightning or mighty fiery judgments, though he has those too. But when describing God's incomparable might, it's his abundant faithfulness that sets him apart. Now our age is characterized by unfaithfulness, right? Stories of unfaithful spouses, corrupt businessmen, corrupt politicians for sure, and even so-called ministers 
seemingly caught in scandals. As Proverbs 20, verse 6 says, perhaps with a little cynicism, many a man proclaims his steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. How relieving, therefore, that our God is surrounded by faithfulness. He's defined by it. Now, that covers the heavenly realms. What about on earth? Ethan continues in verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Now, when I read that to my daughter, Kate, she asked a good question. Who's Rahab, and why is she getting crushed? Now, I, I, ask, I ask the same question. It's a good one. So this is not the only place either in Scripture where this character of Rahab is mentioned. Job speaks of God cutting Rahab to pieces, and Isaiah has a similar passage too. It's worth explaining. Apparently in pagan mythology, speaks of a sea monster called Rahab, with both the monster and the sea itself being like gods of chaos, symbols of wild, untamable power. There's just something about the sea that is deeply ingrained in us as a fearful thing, right? In all ages and all, all men, something about the sea. Consider the disciples of Jesus who, having already seen Jesus' miracles, right? That he's performed miracles, he's fed people, but when they get on the boat with him and there's a calamitous storm, now these are hardened fishermen, remember? They're not thrown off by a, you know, a little rocky seas. They say, teacher, we're about to perish. They believe it's so violent that their lives are coming to an end. And Jesus, with a word, calms it. Now, what's their reaction? Is their reaction joy? Are they filled like, wow, that's cool. We followed the right guy. No, no, Mark chapter 4 gives their reaction. And the disciples feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and sea obey him? See, they knew he was powerful, but that powerful? Yes, he rules the sea. He conquers even chaos. And was it a hard battle for him? A cosmic struggle. Nope. It says he crushed Rahab like a, like a carcass. It's a fun example because a carcass doesn't put up exactly a big fight, right? <laughs> it just gets crushed by the Almighty. And that's our God. The psalmist continues in verse 11. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Now, Hermon was a mountain to the east, perhaps the highest peak in Israel. Tabor was another smaller mountain to the west, served as a landmark bordering three different tribes. So here's his point. Any direction on the compass, north, south, east, west, heights or landmarks, anywhere you go, God has created them and they praise him. I'll reframe it this way. All of the world is on God's payroll. It's all working for him. And then verse 13, you have a mighty arm. Strong is your right hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. So there's that steadfast love and faithfulness once again. But he adds to it righteousness and justice and a strong hand. Now here's why those additions are important. Some today try to process and deal with suffering by saying, God is good and loving, but maybe he's not all-powerful to stop all the evil. Some of it just slips through. Or, we believe God's powerful, but in our hearts, 
we're tempted to feel, although we never say it out loud, we're tempted to feel that maybe he's not being good to me. Maybe all those promises and provisions, I got skipped over on some of those. He has them, it's just somehow it's not trickling down to me. We might be tempted to feel that way. Not so, says the psalmist. God is all-powerful and all-righteous and just, good and fair all the time to everyone. These are the very foundations of his character. All else he does is built on them. Now, these praises so far are not just a random list of spiritual-sounding things. No, they, they're building to a key point. Think about Ethan's build-up here. In heaven, there's no power greater than God. On earth, there's no power or force that can resist him. And there's no place or thing on earth that wasn't built by him and for him. And all those purposes are built on a foundation of perfect goodness, justice, and unshakable faithfulness. So when that God makes a promise, what could possibly stop him? What could possibly interrupt or prevent his promises from working? Well, here's the answer. Nothing. <laughs> Great promises backed by utmost power equals a perfect guarantee. This brings us to Ethan's second point, God's promises. What does God do with such power and dominance? How and where does he exercise it? And that's a critical question because power alone doesn't bring us comfort. If I told you about Elon Musk, who was reconfirmed in a story this week as the richest man in the world, I told you about his influence and his money and his power, you might say, well, that's interesting, but so what? He's not paying my bills. See, it's great to observe power and light in others, but we, we want to see it applied to something, especially something that applies to us. The psalmist reminds us that God has indeed applied his power to a great promise. The promise is to raise up a king, God's anointed, that will have an everlasting kingdom and will raise up sons and daughters to inherit that kingdom with him. Verse 19, Of old, Lord, you spoke in a vision and said, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. Remember, this is the God who crushes the sea and the chaos of the sea. That power is given to his anointed. In verse 24, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Ethan spends 21 verses in total, almost half the psalm, recounting, Lord, you said, and then listing God's promises. In total, there are 14 specific promises that God makes and applies to his anointed, including his two most praised attributes, faithfulness and steadfast love. Now back in verse 1, Ethan opened by saying, I will sing, and I have said, speaking of himself talking. But when he gets here to the promises, he says, Lord, you have said, you promised. Now, does that sound familiar to any parents in the room? Kids generally struggle to listen, but they have one listening superpower, and that is surrounding any promise. So we as parents will often say, uh, you know, if you finish this chore, uh, if you accomplish a thing, you get a grade, you know, we'll take you out for ice cream or we'll, you know, we'll go on a, a, a special trip. Now, once they accomplish that thing, what happens? They quickly come back and say, now you promised, let's go do that thing. In fact, this ability is so hyperactive 
Sometimes they hear promises that were not even given. So if you've ever casually said, you know, one of these Saturdays we should like get some ice cream. What happens first thing Saturday morning? Dad, you promised that today we would go for ice cream. And you think, boy, I don't remember that binding contract. I think I should watch what I, what I say. Now, ultimately, we're not bothered as parents when they come to us with those, right? It, it actually honors and validates us in a way, right? It says our kids believe us. They trust when we said that we would do something and that we'll be good for it, even if we need a little reminding. Now, so Ethan likewise comes to God in faith and says, you promised. And unlike us, who sometimes make promises we don't keep or can't keep, God is all-powerful and all-faithful, so he always fulfills his promises. We honor God by remembering and holding on to those promises. But what are the exceptions to those promises? See, most contracts have a clause that says if one of the parties doesn't fulfill their side, the whole thing is void. What happens if, let's say, King David or one of his descendants were to disobey or forsake the Lord? Just in theory, what, what, what might that do to God's promises? Well, in verse 30 through 33, God says he will punish and discipline as a loving parent to bring them back on track. Then in verse 33, he says, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. See, we can't, mess this up ultimately, as it's based on God's promises, God's power, not us. And praise God for that. <laughs> now, a quick aside, at this point in Scripture, having worked through Kings and Chronicles, and you get into Psalms, you're, perhaps you're a contemporary with, with Ethan, having seen the kingdom go apart. You may say, well, Lord, if David, a man after God's heart, was not enough to, to usher in a stable kingdom, and a son with Wisdom like the sand of the seashore was not enough to uphold this kingdom. Who can possibly make this thing work, right? It's almost as if God may have to do things himself if he wants it done right. Now, how long is this covenant good for? Is there any expiration date? The best if used by date? Verse 36, his offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Selah. No expiration date. As long as the sun endures, his covenant endures. In summary, God has given great promises to establish an everlasting kingdom and people. He has unstoppable power above all forces in the universe to both enact and maintain this promise. All built on goodness, justice, perfect faithfulness, with no exception and no expiration. Now, this would all make the great workings of a great worship song. Just put it to music and we're set. But Ethan doesn't stop there. We've heard this wise man give great praises for God, but now we get point three, his, his pain, his lament before God. He changes the entire mood of the psalm in verse 38 and says this, but now, but now you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. Now, this is a dramatic change of tune, right? It's a 180 from everything he just said. See, I thought the promises were unchangeable and lasted forever. Now he's claiming God has renounced them, thrown them in the dust. 
So what are the, what are the circumstances that are triggering Ethan to, to, to make these claims? So here's the historical context, right? It seems the king kingdom that Israel longed for had just been firmly established. You have David, a man of God's own heart, brought to the throne, established peace. He had many years of struggle, but God brought him through, brought him to power. He has a son to carry on the line. His son's the wisest man in the world. Goes on to build a great temple, a wonder of the world, and usher in prosperity far beyond even what David did. What could go wrong with beginnings like that? But now, seemingly five minutes after Solomon dies, Solomon's son is not a wise man. Rehoboam is a fool. And very quickly, 10 of the 12 tribes rebel, follow after Jeroboam, and then we get many years of exile and suffering and sin and wandering through all the prophets. The covenant God promised to establish forever now seems to be abandoned, seems cut down just as it was getting started. Now, Psalm 72, which was written by Solomon, Solomon speaking about the Lord's kingship and his anointed one, may desert tribes bow down before the king and his enemies lick the dust. Now, that's the, the victory we want, right? The triumph that Ethan was hoping would be achieved or thought maybe had been achieved. But now he says, Lord, what's in the dust is your king's crown. Ethan carries on in verse 42. Now, now listen, I'm going to read these verses. Listen how each one starts with, you have, he's speaking to the Lord. You, verse 42, you have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. Continues down to verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember how there were the 14 promises? If you go through that section, there's 14 you have statements, right? He's saying, you've made 14 promises, but then you seem to have negated them. Just one to one, canceled them out. For every promise, there seems to be, in Ethan's sight, a a failure of God. Now, that's uncomfortable to read. Polite Christians maybe don't say things like that out loud. I kind of imagine the, the worship team putting this psalm to music and beginning to practice it for the first time, you know, ahead of the service to, to, get, to get ready. And uh, they start singing through. The first few lines are great. And then they get to verse 38 in there. And they're singing, Oh, Lord, you've forgotten your people and your kings in the, in the dust and is this, is this in your sheet? <laughs> I, think, I think there's a typo on my, on my lyrics here. This, this can't be right. Now, the degree to which we would all be uncomfortable to sing things like this may indicate how well or little we understand lament. And Ethan's not the only one in Scripture to say that God has caused the trouble. He's at the source of it. Job, while arguing with his friends about his trouble, says God brought them ultimately. In Job 9.24, if it is not he, who then is it? Now, Job knew that some of his troubles were from men. Remember, his servants came to him and say, the Sabians swept in and, and stole some of your flocks. And the, the Chaldeans came. They killed your servants. They, they stole our stuff. But nowhere in the book of Job do you say him saying, curse those Chaldeans. They are the source of my trouble. Now, he knows that. But what he says is, this is from the Lord, and I, I don't know why. What does God say for himself in cases like this? Some hard verses here. Isaiah 45, 7 says, the Lord speaking, 
I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Amos 3.6, if calamity comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it ultimately? Now, what are we to make of this? Are Job and Ethan just complaining here? How is lament different from grumbling? Didn't the Israelites get into a whole lot of trouble for their grumbling? Well, let's look at one of their instances. There were many, but here's one. Exodus 16, 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Life was so good back there. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now see, this was a faithless complaining, saying, God is not good in his intentions, and we reject the leaders he's given us. So here's the difference side by side. Sinful grumbling versus biblical lament. Sinful grumbling says, in despair, it's all hopeless. Biblical lament says, I'm grieving, but with trust. Sinful grumbling in pride says, my sight has the final analysis. And to me, this circumstance was a bad idea. Maybe God has failed. Biblical lament says, my sight has failed to see any good that can come from this. But in humility, I'll wait on God's plan. Sinful grumbling says, maybe God's powerful, but he doesn't act good to me. Maybe I'm not being treated fairly. Biblical lament says, God is both good and powerful. I don't know how to reconcile that with my circumstance. (laughs) Yet, I'll trust his faithfulness. Ultimately, sinful grumbling is a pure complaint against God as you turn your face away, you turn your back to him. Biblical lament brings our complaints to God and in persistent prayer says, Lord, how long? And that's what Ethan's doing here. He's not grumbling. He's bringing a field report to God. He's saying, Lord, you you said that, but this is what's happening. Those promises don't seem to match the present conditions, but I know you're powerful. I know you're faithful. How long? Now, Ethan coming to God here is itself an, an act of worship. It's an act of faith that says, Lord, you can do something about this, and I believe you'll make it right. To stop coming to God with your pain is not to have ceased complaining, but to have ceased believing. To have stopped hoping and waiting, and like the Israelites, just throw up your hands and say, maybe we do better elsewhere. God's not really treating me fairly. Christian lament is filled with faith in God, faith in a future beyond the pain of the present. In that spirit, we have point four, Ethan's petition before God, the ultimate judge. Verse 46 How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath keep burning like fire? Down again to verse 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Remember, Lord, he says, (laughs) I don't doubt your power, your promises, Boy, am I weighed down by your timing. This process is painful. How, how long? Now, this prayer of Ethan's was answered. 
but not how he or anyone else expected at that time, right? While Ethan felt God's king had failed, a kingdom with no clear path forward, we now see what God was doing. At just the right time, God's perfect anointed one, Jesus, came into the world. He too was mocked by his enemies. He bore in his heart the insults of many. He too was seemingly cast into the dust. His ministry seemed to have failed in its prime. His own disciples on the road to Emmaus said, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Their hope was well placed. (laughs) Now Christ has conquered sin and death. He has redeemed his people. He now sits on his eternal throne, ruling the nations at the right hand of God. His enemies will lick the dust. They will be crushed. And by God's promise and power, his kingdom will have no end. God always keeps his promises. Bruce Walkie in his commentary on the Psalms notes this, Lament stares down a long corridor, seeing at the end the cross, with 1 Peter 5, 7 pinned to it. What's 1 Peter 5, 7? <laughs> Let me read it. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Matthew Henry comments here, eternal shalls and wills make glorious havoc among the ifs and buts. If you look at anything in this past year or anything in the year ahead and say, but I had hoped it would work out differently. Bring those things to God in prayerful lament. Cast those cares on him because he is powerful and he is all good and he always keeps his promises. Above and beyond all we Ask and imagine, too. Ethan's final word in verse 52 is a fitting close. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, bring us through all of the but now stages of our life, reminding us that you will work all things for good by your power and promises. Give us strength through the transitional laments of the now that we may yet praise you for all you will do in the days ahead. Amen and amen.